Today is June 8th, 2022. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key and my colleague is Joe King. Do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how Facebook, Google, Amazon, and other big tech companies are using your personal data? Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network, prn.live, that's L-I-V-E, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. on prn.live, streaming on the Internet, and podcasts of the programs available on prn.live on the Internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email address to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Joe King, Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy until we meet again. Same time, same station next week. New York City's master plan for public internet, it's been put on pause. An ambitious plan to bring affordable high-speed internet to millions of people across New York City has been put on pause, leaving the poorest New Yorkers hanging while the Adams administration decides whether to proceed. The Internet Master Plan, which was announced in January of 2020 by former Mayor Bill de Blasio, was designed to help more than 1.5 million city residents who do not have any kind of Internet access. It also aimed to bring more competition to areas with only one Internet provider. Experts and other politicians praised the plan at the time, and the early pilot brought affordable broadband to 45,000 residents of the New York City Housing Authority buildings. But at a City Council Technology Committee meeting held in mid-May, the city's new chief technology officer, Matthew Fraser, said the program is being reevaluated. And the next phase of the project, a $157 million effort that would build out public broadband infrastructure, is yet to launch. That's despite the city drawing up contracts with internet service providers, according to officials at the Office of Technology and Innovation. 11 service providers, many minority-owned, are ready and waiting to lay the necessary fiber-optic cables for major broadband expansion, said the managing director at HRNA Advisors, which worked on the Internet Master Plan. The delay is partially due to mayoral transition and a blame game. The public service most involved in the plan's creation exited with de Blasio, but two of the plan's architects say it was well thought through when they handed it over to the Adams administration. But Fraser claims a project has major issues, although he didn't define what the issues were. The new administration must give its approval of the plan before the internet companies can start laying even a foot of fiber optic cable. Most New Yorkers use mobile internet, 4G and 5G, while out and about, and then turn to Wi-Fi at home. 
But about 3.4 million New York City residents are missing at least one of these connections, according to data analyzed by the Internet's master plan's creator. About 1.5 million have neither home nor mobile Internet access. The poorest New Yorkers are the most disconnected. Nearly half of city households below the poverty level lack a Wi-Fi connection at home. And while Manhattan is covered by multiple Internet service providers, according to the plan's authors, the other boroughs are served by one or two, which can be prohibitively expensive. The fastest broadband connections are limited to Manhattan. Wide swaths of Brooklyn and Queens have no access to fiber optic internet, meaning it takes longer for them to do homework, sign up for city services, reach essential websites such as their health care providers, read digital news, or otherwise stay informed. The Internet Master Plan entered this ruckus in January 2020, spearheaded by then-CTO John Paul Farmer, and it proposed teaming up with local businesses to extend fiber optic infrastructure to underserved neighborhoods and give New Yorkers the choice of multiple internet service providers. The city would offer up utility poles, rooftops, and other city real estate for the companies to use for construction. The broader range of service and wealth of new providers could save New Yorkers up to $40 per month. The plan's author projected and would bring affordable internet access to as many as 1.2 million households. Lawmakers and experts alike praise the plan for its focus on equity and affordability. The COVID-19 pandemic exposed and exasperated pre-existing inequities in internet access. Underconnected families struggle to access services, and their children risk failing behind in virtual school. In summer 2020, de Blasio promised to dedicate $157 million, including a large chunk of funds diverted from the police department, to build municipal broadband infrastructure in underserved neighborhoods. The city also teamed up with six internet service providers to bring affordable internet access to 45,000 residents of New York City Housing Authority and the current mayor and then Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams praised the broadband expansion. In fact, he even released the following statement. A 21st century city deserves a 21st century infrastructure, and we must be laser-focused on delivering universal broadband to all five boroughs and closing the digital divide as soon as possible. He said this in May of 2021. That fall, the de Blasio administration announced that it had picked the companies that would get New Yorkers connected to affordable broadband. A number were local businesses owned and led by women and people of color. A stark contrast to Verizon, Spectrum, and Altice, the massive internet service providers that dominate much of the city. But before work could begin, the mayor's office of the CTO underwent several changes. Key figures who worked on or advocated for the internet master plan departed. In the first month of his administration, Mayor Eric Adams reorganized a handful of disparate technology-related city agencies, including the Department of Information and Technology, into the newly created Office of Technology and Innovation. This is managed by the former Deputy Commissioner of IT at NYPD. Months passed, and the vendors chosen by the city 
still hadn't been given the go-ahead to start their work. At the May budget meeting, the plan was, quote-unquote, under review to ensure it didn't call for new broadband infrastructure in places where it was already present. They wanted to check the plan carefully before committing such a large sum of money. The Internet Master Plan is, at present, being reevaluated. Meanwhile, Link NYC Create a City Bridge will begin installing three-story poles with 5G capability this summer. The New York Public Library can try out free home Wi-Fi through the Citizens Broadband Radio Service, and NYC Mesh offers community-owned internet to residents in reach of their network. Low-income New Yorkers can also receive discounts on their internet service through the Affordable Connectivity Program. I wonder how many of you can remember when we were planning on building the 2nd Avenue subway. That was back in the late 40s. It only got put in a couple years ago, and they only added three stations. Wow, that's a case where everyone was in on it in the planning, and, well, we plan, and we plan, and we plan. Would you want to recover deleted data on a solid-state drive? Trim is a command with the help of which the operating system can tell the solid-state drive which data blocks are no longer needed and can be deleted or are marked as free for rewriting. In other words, Trim is a command that helps the operating system know precisely where the data that you want to move or delete is stored. That way, the solid-state drive can access only the blocks holding the data. Furthermore, whenever a delete command is issued by the user or the operating system, the trim command immediately wipes the pages or blocks where the files are stored. This means that the next time the operating system tries to write new data in that area, it does not have to wait first to delete it. To paraphrase Sir Isaac Newton, For every action, there is a reaction. For every behavior, there is a consequence. If you had accidentally deleted data on a solid-state drive, the chances for data recovery is near zero, whereas deleted data on a hard disk drive is marked as unavailable and can be retrieved if other data has not overwritten on top of it. If you want to be able to retrieve deleted data on a solid-state drive, you need to disable the trim command first. The trim is a command for the SATA solid-state drive that instructs the Windows operating system to delete the pages from the solid-state drive data block selectively. The command may improve the performance of your drive, but there are times when it can cause more harm than good. The trim command significantly improves the performance of solid-state drives by eliminating the need to relocate the pages from the data block and restore them after removing the deleted pages. However, it makes the deleted data unrecoverable. Therefore, in case of accidental loss of data from the solid-state drive, you will be unable to recover it even with the help of automated data recovery tools. Therefore, if you habitually delete files before backing them up, this command should be disabled. My recommendation? is that if data written onto a solid-state drive is sensitive and needs to be secured, keep the trim option on. When the data is deleted, it is really deleted. Otherwise, with trim off, 
you have the ability to recover deleted data. However, you should turn it back on if disabling it bogs down your drive's performance. Sony says smartphones will kill off the digital single lens reflex within three years. Phone cameras are set to get even better. According to Sony, image quality from phones will finally trump that of their single lens reflex rivals by 2024. The president and CEO of Sony Semiconductor Solutions told the business briefing that they expect the still images from smartphones will exceed the image quality of single-lens reflex cameras within the next few years. Smartphones are expected to continue their imaging evolution and, for most people, make standalone cameras redundant. And the technology they're using, for most people, is technology babble that the words are impressive but has very little meaning to them. So what technology will drive this continual rise of the best phone cameras? Sony points to a few factors, including quantum saturation, as if you know what it is, and improvements to AI processing. Interestingly, Sony also expects the sensor size in high-end model phones to double by 2024. The larger pixels on these sensors will, it says, allow phone makers to apply multi-frame processing that realizes a new imaging experience, including improved Super HDR modes and zooms that combine folded optics with AI algorithms. I, I hear the words folded optics. I don't know what it is yet. I have to see it. Sony also highlighted the development of its two-layer transistor pixel technology to drastically improve the dynamic range on phone cameras and help reduce low-light noise. Similar advances are coming for video, too, according to Sony's presentation, with the higher readout speeds of next-gen sensors supporting 8K video, multi-frame processing, including video HDR, and a general realization of AI processing for video. In other words, computational video techniques. In other words, you're using a computer to manipulate the image. According to Statista, Sony has 42% of the global image sensor market for phones, while teardowns of the iPhone 13 Pro Max show that it uses three Sony IMX7 series sensors. The biggest advances in recent years have come in multi-frame processing, otherwise known as computational photography. Sony was keen to stress the role that new hardware will play in lifting phone cameras to new photographic heights. Its prediction that the sensor sizes in high-end phones will double by 2024 is slightly surprising, given that this is limited by factors like lenses. For example, the Sony Xperia Pro 1 became Sony's first phone to have a one-inch sensor last year, but its lens wasn't able to project a large enough image rather than the native 20-megapixel resolution. Perhaps more significant is Sony's new stacked CMOS sensor with two-layer transistor pixels, which effectively exposes each pixel to twice as much light as a standard sensor. This sounds like a hardware advance that computational algorithms could definitely get their teeth stuck into 
in order to boost dynamic range and noise performance. While digital single-lens reflexes and mirrorless cameras will always have an audience among hobbyists and pros due to their handling, creative control, viewfinders, and single-shot image quality, the kinds of advances outlined in Sony's presentation show that the next few years are going to be particularly exciting time for phone cameras. If you increase the size of the sensor, the lens also increases in size. Taken together, it means the cell phone will be physically larger. For the average consumer, I raise the question, where is the sweet spot size for the cell phone for the average consumer? Is it the kitchen sink? I don't know. The United States takes supercomputer top spot with the first true exascale machine. The HP Enterprise Frontier system can perform over one quintillion calculations per second. What's a quintillion? A quintillion calculations a second? That's a one with 18 zeros after it. It's the speed at which an exascale supercomputer will process information. The world's fastest supercomputer resides at the Department of Energy's Oak Ridge National Laboratory and counts as the first true exascale machine with an HPL score of 1.102 exaflops per second. The Frontier supercomputer was announced as the fastest supercomputer today in the 59th Top 500 list. It uses Hewlett-Packard's Enterprise's Cray X platform and consists of 74 purpose-built cabinets. Contained within them are a mix of AMD EPYC 64C 2GHz processors and AMD Instinct 250X professional GPUs. In total, there are more than 9,400 CPUs and 37,000 GPUs for a total core count of 8,730,112 cores. The huge amount of processing performance achieved equates to 52.23 gigaflops per watt and more than one quintillion calculations per second. That's combined with 700 petabytes of storage and HPE's Slingshot high-performance Ethernet for data transfers. In order to cool the system, the HPE system pumps 6,000 gallons of water through Frontier's cabinets every minute using four 350-horsepower pumps. To put this performance leap in context, the previous fastest supercomputer is the Fugaku system installed at the Riken Center for Computational Science in Kobe, Japan. It contains 7,630,848 cores and has an HPL benchmark of just 442 petaflops per second, compared to Frontier's 1.1 exaflops per second. Fugaku also offers nearly three times the processing power of the supercomputer in third place. What's your cost to work from home versus return to the office? Fortune.com reported on the true cost of work from home versus return to the office. Despite many companies setting return to office deadlines, for the past month, the U.S. office occupancy has held steady at roughly 43%. 
That takes into account rates in 10 major cities. Many employees are pushing back against heading into the office, not because of rising COVID caseloads, but arguing that their commutes are too expensive. In fact, a recent report from Deloitte found nearly 40% of millennials and a third of Gen Z's report that remote work has helped them save money. But is working from home really a savings for most workers? While working from home means skipping the commute, it's not free, especially when you take into account rising energy costs. Electricity costs in April alone were up 11% year over year, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics Consumer Price Index. That increase not be a big deal when you spend eight or more hours a day at the office soaking up the corporate air conditioning, but when workers are at home, the cost is on them. And that expense could be significant depending on factors like the size of the home, the type of air conditioning system, and various home maintenance variables like window efficiency, and that's not to mention the additional cost to power your computer, to keep your work phone charged, and maybe even run a printer once a day or so. During the first four months of this year, Americans spent an average of $23 more on monthly electricity and gas bills than they did during the same period in 2019, according to data provided to Fortune from Bill Pay Services Doxon. On average, Americans have spent about $156 a month for electricity and $150 a month for natural gas so far this year. Those who use heating oil and propane had even higher bills, averaging $302 a month for their heating expenses in 2022. Those higher costs weren't even racked up during the hottest months of the year for most of the country. The U.S. Energy Information Administration reported that during the summer of 2020, when many Americans were under lockdown orders and working remotely, residential electricity consumption was 7.9% higher than in the summer months of 2019. That was the fastest year-over-year summer energy growth since 2010. This summer, the administration predicts that residential customers will average about 1,050 kilowatt hours of electricity use per month between June and August 2022. That's about 2.9% less than the summer of 2021, due in part to milder temperature forecasts, as well as few Americans working from home. Internet costs can also be factored into work-from-home expenses. On average, Americans spent about $120 a month on their internet and cable bills in 2022 so far, about on par with what U.S. households spent pre-pandemic. That can vary as some workers opted to upgrade their internet connections during the pandemic, making that monthly cost continually higher, too. While Americans might be spending more for electricity, there's no denying that soaring prices at the gas pump are taking an even bigger bite out of Americans' budgets. Fortune calculated the average cost for gas for a five-day work commute was roughly $140 in May, based on average gas prices from AAA, average commute mileage, and typical fuel efficiency for a car, 
That's compared to the roughly $90 a month that drivers spent on gas for their commute in May of 2019. That's a $50 difference. That, of course, doesn't take into account the related costs of car ownership, including maintenance and insurance, which can increase if a car is driven more frequently. Based on AAA's guidance, the UC Santa Barbara's estimates that these expenses can add up to nearly $500 a month. Tolls and parking fees can also increase commuting costs, but those expenses vary considerably. When it comes to public transit, the average cost of a monthly transit range widely. In New York City, a monthly unlimited metro card is $127. A monthly unlimited pass for public transit in Baltimore would be $77 starting June 26 of this month. Ultimately, when you look at the cost of commuting versus the cost of working from home, Americans are paying more in general, and neither option would likely help them significantly. That's especially true given that many companies are now letting work-from-home stipends, which help cover some of those energy. About 10% of employers surveyed in June and July of 2020 provided some type of subsidy to workers to help them manage the course of working remotely. By February 2021, the Employer Council found only 3% of employers surveyed were offering their employees a lump sum stipend or reimbursement on home office equipment. The average stipend was about $66 per month. Both commuting and work-from-home expenses vary widely and depend entirely on where Americans live and the strategies they utilize to save money at home or on their way into the office. Google Maps contract employees, for example, recently pushed back against demands that they return to work full-time. One employee told the New York Times that he'd be forced into a daily 100-mile, four-hour commute with a national average gas price of $4.91.9 a gallon, and that was based on yesterday's Tuesday's price. The commute cost for fuel alone would likely cost over $400 a month, yet there are ways to reduce the cost of returning to the office. A worker who carpools with just one other person for the average 41-mile round-trip commute can cut the current monthly average fuel cost from $150 to $75. Taking the bus, train, or subway, or riding a bike or scooter to work might also yield some savings, as does searching out the best gas prices using apps like GasBuddy. On the flip side, the size and location of a home play into how much more you could spend to work from home. Pre-pandemic, cooling a 4,000-square-foot home cost 71% more, or about $114 on average, than a 2,500-square-foot space. Additionally, Americans living in states like Texas, Florida, and Arizona pay twice as much to stay cool in the summer as those living in the northern states like Maine and Montana. When comparing working from home and return to the office, it is not a simple trade-off. Factors will vary from one person to the next. Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell. Types of backups you can perform. 
This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now is when we get down to business. This is where I give you the benefit of my many years of experience as being an IT professional. It's current, actually. I'm still an IT professional, Uh, just uh, not as much hands-on tech as I used to be, but I still give you a lot of this information. And one of the areas that is really near and dear to my heart is doing backups. Now, I'm going to talk about backups, and I'm not even going to give you the usual sales pitch. You have to do a backup. You have to, have to, have to do a backup. And here are the 28 different reasons in detail as to why you have to do a backup. I could simply just give you the many different experiences that I've had where a backup really saved my skin, whether it was uh, my own personal time or it was my job or it was whatever else it was. I also could go through it and I'm not going to talk about the few times where I did not do a backup or I ignored warnings and lost very important data. Fortunately, that was always on the personal front, not on the business front. No, what I'm going to talk about this time is the various types of backups, because I'm going to presume that there are people out there that they've gone through and they've set a, they've, they've picked a, basically a decision. I'm going to do backups, but then they went through and they did their backups utilizing whatever method they thought was the best. And I'm going to piece apart some of the common types of backups and give you a little bit more detail behind them. Uh, because there are many people out there that still don't do backups. All right. So you have multiple options. You have the full backup. Now, the full backup is a great, great choice for a one-time shot. It takes a long time. If I'm going through and I'm going to upgrade somebody's computer, a significant upgrade, I'm going to do a full backup. Now, that full backup usually consists of my sitting down, I plug up an external hard drive, and I start the backup running. Now, I usually don't do this on site. This is something where uh, somebody brings a computer to my office or, or whatever else it is that I'm dealing with. Um, and, and I set up the computer and I do this backup. The reason why I don't really sit there and I let it run on its own is because it's going to run for two, three, four, five, eight hours. This is just a standard desktop. Now, imagine if I were going to back up an entire server. So there are a couple of reasons why we don't do full backups. The time involved is the biggest reason. And it's hard to maintain. As a matter of fact, over the course of, on a network server, for instance, over the course of that backup, we're going to have so many files that are changed during that full backup that it just does not make any sense to do the full backup. You have to do it once. You always have to do one full backup, which is all of the data all the way across that particular system. Now, everything else beyond that is where it gets kind of fun. Uh, The three major different types of backups are going to be, uh, that are beyond the full backup, are going to be mirror, incremental, and differential. So, 
that you you do a full backup and then you institute a mirror backup. Now, what that mirror backup does is it says, all right, have any files been changed? Is anything different than what it used to be? All right, I'm going to take that information and I'm going to put it here on the backup. All right, I put it on the backup. Anything else changed? And it keeps going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And you could have a failure of the primary at any point in time. That failure happens and then that mirror backup is ready to go. It has all of the information. We do this sometimes with disaster recovery boxes. There are special disaster recovery boxes where they monitor the server and they're set and they're ready to go. And you can take that disaster recovery box and put it over there in place of the original server's data and it works. It's a lot slower. It's not going to be anywhere near as efficient, but it's something. The next type of backup, and this is where we, these, the next two are what people usually deal with. You have the incremental backup. Now, the incremental backup is basically you take your full backup, and then everything that comes along, anything that's new and modified, it gets backed up. Now, the nice thing is, if you're not modifying a whole lot, it just takes an extra couple of minutes. All right, we, we, you changed 10 files. All right, we're going to back those up. Oh, you changed 10 more files. We're going to back up those new 10 files. You changed 10 more. We're going to back up those 10 new files. Now, when you go to restore, you have to restore the full backup and then the three different additional backups, those three different incremental backups. The differential is the fun one, though, and this is the one that I actually prefer when possible. You take a full backup, and then you take this differential backup, and that is everything that's changed since the last time you did a full backup. So those 10 files plus the 10 more plus the 10 more all are combined, and they're all backed up into that one differential backup. So that's the first day. It's... 10 files that are backed up. The second day, it's 20. And the third day, it's 30. And the fourth day, it's 40. And you get the idea there. It's a growing differential backup. And it's just fine because you only have to keep track of two of those items. There's a lot more to backups. I strongly encourage that you do back up your data on a regular basis. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. Layoffs of tech workers continue in the technology sector. After a month that saw nearly 16,000 tech workers lose their jobs, June is off to a similar tumultuous start. It's a tough market, a time of uncertainty, and a correction towards sustainability is needed. Carbon Health laid off 8% of staff, or 250 people. The startup's most recent funding was a $350 million back in July of 2021. In 2020, Carbon Health developed both pop-up clinics and at-home test kits. Loom, an enterprise video tool, laid off 14% of staff. Loom benefited from a surge of people working from home in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. The product was positioned to help remote workers find better ways to connect with colleagues in the virtual first world. The layoffs are to help it build 
in what it describes as more sustainable way moving forward. Then we have Coinbase. Coinbase will extend its hiring freeze and revoke accepted offers from some candidates who haven't even started their jobs yet, and they were informed of their status via email. The crypto platform Gemini laid off 10% of its staff due to turbulent market conditions. Social app IRL lays off 25% of the team, says it has enough cash to last well into 2024, but the cut comes around a year after the startup raised $170 million. The CEO said that IRL has more than enough cash to last well into 2024. Over the last year, the startup increased its headcount by 3.5 times. But he noted that WhatsApp was able to grow to 450 million users with a team of just 55 people. This suggests that the workforce reduction was less about trying to reduce runway and more about right-sizing the team after a period of overhiring. Insurance companies are leveraging technologies such as big data, artificial intelligence, consumer wearables, and smartphone apps to transform the way they do business. The insurance landscape has shifted dramatically. Demand for new technology and the talent to create it knows no bounds. Consumers crave speed, convenience, and transparency more now than ever before. Global investment rose from $348 million in 2012 to $4.15 billion in 2018. In the competitive digital era, the rush of new companies getting into business were able to get impressive venture capital. But with the economy, many insurance tech companies have quickly opted to preserve capital that was only recently raised. Policy Genius cuts 25% of staff less than three months after raising $125 million. Jennifer Fitzgerald, CEO and co-founder of Policy Genius, said, as with many companies, the sudden and dramatic shift in the economy has forced us to adapt our strategy. After careful consideration, we announced the difficult and necessary decision to reduce the size of our workforce. With these changes, we remain confident in the future of our company, our continued innovation, and the excellent service we continue to provide our customers every day. This is a difficult day for us at Policy Genius, and especially for our employees who have been directly impacted. We're saying goodbye to friends and colleagues who have, through their hard work and dedication, helped build this company and deliver on our mission for our customers. We're grateful for their many contributions and wish them all the best. And this is after raising $125 million just three months ago. And with all these workers who've done the fine work to enable them to raise that money, they get laid off. Policy Genius, whose software essentially allows consumers to find and buy different insurance products online, said that its home and auto insurance business had grown significantly with new written premiums having increased more than six times from 2012 to 2021. In a press release, the company said, Policy Genius continues to be the only tech-enabled brokerage and distribution platform to have successfully scaled and diversified across life and home and auto insurance. 
the company will use the new capital to continue to invest in the growth of its core business of life, disability, home, and auto insurance, as well as no new exam life insurance offerings and Policy Genius Pro. I don't know why they then had to lay off all those people. Since its 2014 inception, Polygenius has raised over $250 million from investors. It has been widely reported how poorly insurance technology companies have fared in the public markets over the past year with Lemonade, which sells rental insurance, Root, which focuses on auto insurance, and Hippo, which focused on home coverage, are all trading significantly lower than their opening prices. MetroMile, also in auto insurance, is selling out to Lemonade. It was quite the run of liquidity for companies that racked up impressive venture backing in their early days. Many of these companies are now hastily running for cover by laying off recently hired people to preserve their capital in what they perceive will be a major downturn in the economy. And then you have Amsterdam-based TomTom that just let go of 500 employees, or 10% of its workforce. TomTom used to be known for car GPS navigation before we all had iPhones. A digital mental health company, Cerebral, plans to conduct layoffs in July. The telehealth company also recently replaced its founding CEO amid a government investigation into its potential violations of the Controlled Substance Act. Cerebro had been critiqued for overprescribing ADHD drugs. Then Tesla CEO Elon Musk ordered a hiring freeze and job cuts, which would affect 10% of salary employees. Currently, Tesla employs almost 100,000 people. Companies like Coinbase, Tesla, and IRL, they have enough money to keep their staff employed during a tumultuous economic time and ongoing pandemic but they cut costs anyway by letting go of their staff. Unfortunately, workers can't control getting laid off when their employer has enough money to retain them. And for those of us, subject to the endless, frustrating American healthcare system, losing your job also means medical instability for both you and your family. Let's stop pretending that Cobra isn't exorbitantly expensive. Meanwhile, Coinbase rescinded already accepted offers from a number of employees, according to Lincoln Search. Many of the rescinded employees were students who were soon to graduate with PhDs and bachelor's degrees alike. In those cases, the new hire may accept a job months before their start date, since they'll need to graduate before filling the role. Soon-to-be graduates who accepted jobs at Coinbase turned down several other offers to work at the major crypto exchange. But now, they're stuck, scrambling to find new employment. This situation is even more dire for international students who risk deportation if they can't find an employer to sponsor their visas. Layoffs are sadly an inevitable part of corporate life, especially in startups. But so often it seems like they're caused by bad management choices that makes it more difficult to keep paying staff. People make mistakes, but those mistakes can put innocent workers in situations of financial fine, potential deportation, and limited access to health care. So when layoffs are made as a precaution or a correction to mitigate past mistakes and overhiring, it's personal. 
Typically, layoffs are due to companies operating a loss, but this is not the case for most of the technology-oriented companies. In fact, many have recently raised venture capital. It seems they have just overhired and are quick to lay off employees at any sign of economic downturn. Layoffs should be treated as a worst-case scenario, not as a precaution. Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston, Klein Tools Hook and Loop Dispenser. I have two guests with me today, Marty Winston, and let's see if you recognize this voice. <laughs> that would Not be the, me unhooking my dog. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't, don't, yeah, don't use this on your dog. You know, this is this is hook and loop uh, fasteners. You know, people might know this is uh, this like Velcro is uh, the yeah. common brand name. You know, much like Kleenex for tissues and stuff like that. But uh, you know, um, I've been getting organized, so I have a lot of this stuff around. So I am really excited by to hear about this tool that Marty's going to be talking about, uh, because Client Tools uh, they've gone into this into this field here. They have yes, a new dispenser and cutter for hook and loop rolls. Now, Ben, you've worked around racks for the last what three hundred years. Three hundred and twenty, but yeah, okay. <laughs> and when you have a rack, you've got tons of cables inside. Sometimes you need to loop it to take up the slack. Yes. Sometimes yes, you need yes. to cable up combinations of wires so they run together. I, I'm doing that right now. I'm I'm going into the office, uh, and and this is just my desk at the office. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm only going to be in the office for one day a week, but uh, but yeah, I'm I'm using this stuff. You know. Those stupid little, you know, the the, uh, the whatever twisties. it is that you use for 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 bread, you know, yeah, the, yeah twist twist ties. There we go. Yeah, yeah. I, you know that that that's not professional. And, this stuff and, is. And the single sided stuff, where I'm sorry, one side has the hooks and the other side has a loop, so you can wrap it around itself. Yes, yes, yes. That was a wonderful improvement, except that it's always on a continuous roll. And you need to have scissors. So you're holding the yes, wires. Yes. You're holding the yes. hook and loop. Oh, you're yeah. holding oh, the yeah. scissors. And if you don't have three or more hands, it all gets to be kind of awkward. It, it, kind of? Yeah, yeah, especially when you're crawling around underneath your desk at work. You're looking up and, you know, from an awkward angle. And, yeah, it, it, you're like, what? what's Ben doing? <laughs> Don't ask. Just move on. Just, just, just go back to work. So, you know, <laughs> COVID not, did something to him. It, it's not just in the racks. I mean, if, if gardeners know that this is great for holding the, the yes, yes, right. And I just and, found that out. I had no idea. I just found that out this last week. Oh I was, I, I was <laughs> uh, you can tell how much gardening I do. <laughs> What's that big yellow bright thing up in the sky? I have no (laughs) idea. (laughs) Uh, These days, it's probably an incoming missile. (laughs) Oh, dear. (laughs) (laughs) On your back deck, right? Mm -hmm, You've got that kind of fence-like thing surrounding it. Mm -hmm, Yeah. Which is so, uh, A, you can't run off of it accidentally, and B, you always have to take the long way around to get back to the yard. But... (laughs) We we found one of those things that looks like ivy that's a, a woven cloth and you hang it on the side. How do you hold that on? Those ties are not a good choice. You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I, I hadn't thought about it. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe 
staple gun? I don't know. But, but, but the Hulk and Lube does sound like a great idea. Right. And to have it on this dispenser roll, I've got to tell you, the whole thing, kind I'm holding it in one hand, so it's yeah, not huge. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't fit inside the hand entirely. Mm-hmm. It's got a slicer at the top with a sing, simple lever action, so you've got exactly the length you need. It takes replacement rolls at the bottom. The back has both keyhole slots for hanging it on screws, you know, to store or, or if you're using it repeatedly in a particular place. And it also has magnets on it and belt loops. Carry it with you. You've just saved yourself two more hands. Okay. Uh, uh, belt loops I can see. I can see the, you know, the, the, the standard, you know, hanging on a screw. Magnets, though, that rocks. I love that idea. <laughs> you know, this okay. This is why this is why I really like hearing about the client tools because they do think things through a little bit better than oh, uh, at least better than I do. <laughs> hey, 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 hey. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I, I, I don't know. This came in and I thought we're going to give this one a whole segment because number one, <laughs> <laughs> hook, hook and loop. Yeah, I, 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 you know, I've been fascinated with this since I was a little kid. It's, it's just amazing stuff. So, so, so the whole idea here is you utilize this wherever for these continuous rolls of mm-hmm. the hook and loop. Now, do they? I, I, I presume Klein has gotten into providing the refills for that and, and all of that. In black or white. Nice, nice. <laughs> you know, you know, if you're dealing with the Windows PC, you're going to use the black, uh, the black roll. If you're dealing with Apple and the Macintosh and all of that, you'll use <laughs> use the white roll. Keith and would be happy. Keith, <laughs> replacement blades. If you ever wear out the cutter, which means you're using a lot of this. Yeah, if you're wearing out the, the you know, you're wearing out blades for cutting, <laughs> cutting that stuff. Oh man. Yeah, and uh, let, let me also mention. Yeah. How many of you, when you hit a bump, hear a lot of stuff in the trunk rattle? Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a very valid point. Uh, you know, I don't have that problem in my car, but my because wife you does. you never go anywhere? Oh, no, I go, <laughs> I go places. I, I secure things down. I've got, I've got like a little net that I put down. Hmm. But my wife, though, she puts everything on top of the net, so it's just rolling around and all that. <laughs> well, you could tie it to the net with hook and loop. Yeah, yeah, a very valid point there. So that's it, what you. What's on your mind today? <laughs> <laughs> and besides, it's that sound. It's the sound. Oh, that's that, sound. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, this is it, this is really great stuff. So I'm I'm happy that Klein got into this. I uh, I'm I'm hoping that we start seeing more stuff from them in this in this realm. I uh, I'll find a moment to talk to them and nag them a bit. Yeah, uh, yeah. you know. Their roadmap has picked. I mean, like everybody else, supply chain's been an issue. You, sure, you can invent yeah. something, but you got to build it. And where's that coming from? Yeah, Better, yeah. And and uh, you know, I'm delighted it, they're they're not stalled by the economy of Russia at the moment because yes. they don't go there. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Alrighty. As for now, this is Benjamin Rockwell, and that's Marty Winston. You're listening to Computer Talk Radio. Thank you, Ben, and thank you, Marty. Public Service Announcements Computer Club Meetings in the New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut Tri-State Region Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. The New York Amateur Computer Club has a presentation on Update on Fighting Robocalls, Thursday, June 9th, meeting time 7 p.m., virtual online meeting via Zoom, 
Website is nyacc.org. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group meets Friday, June 10th. Meeting time, 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. Website is limac.org. The King's Byte Computer Club meets Tuesday, June 14th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. They meet at the Park Plaza Restaurant, 220 Cadman Plaza West, Brooklyn. The phone number to call to confirm is 347-278-7320. The Brookdale Computer Users Group has a presentation on Learn All About a VPN, Thursday, June the 23rd. Meeting time is 6.45 p.m. Virtual meeting via Zoom. Website is bcug.com. The Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey meets Friday, July 1st. Meeting time is 8 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Jitsi. Website is acgnj.org. The Westchester PC Users Group meets Thursday, July 7th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. Website is wpcug.org. Happy computing! Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. on prn.live, streaming on the Internet, and podcasts of the programs available on prn.live on the Internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email address to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key. And on behalf of Joe King, Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy until we meet again, same time, same station, next week.